This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host Jen Wilkin and JT English. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Hi. It is. It is the morning. It is the morning. It is the morning. I mean, it's a little bit earlier for you, JT, than it is for us. It is. Yeah, and it's super snowy here. We've got about four or five inches of snow, which is going to make our vacation that we had out on tomorrow that much sweeter. <laughs> oh, man, that's great. Are you? Wait, wait. Are you going into the snow or away from the snow on your vacation? Away from the snow. Oh, okay. Colorado boy's I, tired I of the sc- snow, huh? Interesting. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, every, every you know, five, six months, just get like a nice little tropical vacation with I just want to avoid the bugs and I also got like this white pasty skin I'm gonna to have to like ease into the sun a little bit but other than that it's gonna be like, a, wait, hold like on. a salamander hold on would, mm-hmm. oh gosh <laughs> when you say avoid the bugs do you mean for clarity do you do you mean insects or stomach bugs uh-huh. I guess both I was referring to stomach bugs I okay. mean uh, uh, insect but now I'm thinking only about stomach bugs because the worst well, thing is getting sick on vacation and everybody who does the tropical vacation, like I feel like this is why Lauren and I have never done it, is I feel like everybody who goes eventually is like, oh, yeah, you know, on the third day, the trip was great. But on the third day, we got a 24-hour bug. I'm like, how does everybody catch these bugs? It's actually never happened to us. We've done quite a few of them. But why would wow. you speak that into my life? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm, I'll pray against it. Um, if I'm on day three and I get a stomach bug, I'm going to call you from the bathroom. <laughs> what, well, then I will not be answering. Yeah, don't don't uh, link me into that call. I'll just hear about yeah. it later. <laughs> and uh, JT, I, I do want to note for the audience that you are uh, you are uh, garbed in uh, Colorado University attire. Colorado State University. Okay. I think it's appropriate as well that today, the day we're recording is St. Patrick's Day. Our official colors are green and gold. And so the day that the entire uh, world is wearing green, my Colorado State Rams are preparing to beat the Michigan Wolverines <laughs> in March Madness. Um. That's great. Uh, now, uh, in, I want you to know we are doing four minute episodes today, so that I can get off this call, <laughs> and so that I can, and so no. that I can go watch. CSU. My, new, my new tactic is for these to be the longest episodes that we've ever recorded. That's fine. You're welcome to stand here as long as you want. I mean, I'm, I mean, the, I will say for the, the, I, I love, I love uh, my Bible, but I also love my Rams, and so those two things are in competition today. Well, well, I will say that for the record, if a Wolverine did fight a square off against a Ram, a Wolverine would would win. Right. It's not even close. There's no way. You just one one hit from the horns and the Wolverine's done. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, um, on to what we're actually talking about today, which is Romans 12 through 3 through 8. Uh, and uh, Jen, would you like to read that for us? You feel good about that? I would love to. Great. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. There we go. So today we're looking at Romans 12, three through eight. Last episode, we did verses one through two. We noted that there's a change in focus coming out of chapter 11 and into chapter 12. You know, he begins in uh, verse one of chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So with that kind of one line, he looks back and he's like, listen, in light 
of everything that we've said, everything we've said about the brokenness of the world, everything we've said about the problem of unrighteousness, everything we've said about the hope of salvation and justification, everything we've said about sanctification in 6 and 7, everything we've said about uh, the hope of glory and the future salvation in Romans 8, everything we've said about Israel and Gentile relations in 9 through 11, and the doxology in light of all these things, Paul is now shifting our focus to going, what now? I almost, it's like the uh, Francis Schaeffer question, uh, how then shall we now live? Mm-hmm. And Romans 12 begins to be a, a, a kind of a deep exploration of this. Well, and I think that the pattern that we're seeing Paul lay out across the book of Romans is actually instructive on the whole because he basically gives them those first chapters to reach a point of deep conviction but conviction doesn't lead where we might think it does. It leads to worship. Like that's what happens at the mm-hmm. end of chapter 11 is he, he bursts into doxology. So we have, we have awareness of our sin uh, and then worship at an awareness of the depth of God's mercy and then response. And that's, that's the pattern in the Christian life is uh, that we repent, um, we receive mercy, and we get up. And those new mercies mean that we strive to obey. And so I, I love that the whole book is a pattern for us of the Christian life. Yeah. If you zoom out and look at it that way. And these exhortations are, are, are falling against a unique background to this letter. JT, you mentioned it briefly in the last episode, but could you just remind our audience, why are some of these, even in uh, verses three through eight, but also in our next episode, nine through the end of the chapter, why are some of these exhortations uniquely relevant to the situation in Rome? Yeah, just real simply, you, you don't have division in Rome, but you do have friction in Rome. And there are two groups of people that are kind of at each other's necks about what does faithfulness look like? What does it look like to follow Jesus, either as Jewish Christians or as Gentile Christians? And these two groups of people are sitting in the same Rome as Phoebe is reading them this letter. And Paul knows that. Paul knows that I have to address these two groups of people and remind them that you are not two different bodies that believe in Jesus, mm-hmm. but you're actually one body that believes in Jesus, a new social organism that has been bound together through the work of Jesus. And that means we now relate to each other differently. So uh, whether you're a slave or you're free or you're Jew or Gentile or male or female, as Paul would say in Galatians, or Scythian or barbarian, you're now part of this one seed, this one flesh, this one body, this one temple that Paul uses continually in all of his epistles to remind all Christians, that you are now entering into this new reality of being one, mm-hmm. of having unity where there wasn't previously unity or having oneness where there wasn't or where there was previously diversity. Yeah. Now, in verse three, we get an interesting phrase here. It begins, I think, uh, kind of rather straightforwardly, where Paul is saying, listen, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Think with sober judgment. That's probably, I think, almost certainly a callback to what he just said in verse mm-hmm. two, that we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So this idea of, hey, as we're transformed, we're not only going to think rightly about God and the world, we should begin to think rightly about ourselves mm-hmm. with sober judgment. But then he says, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And I got to tell you, I I don't necessarily know what he means here with measure of faith. Do you guys have any clarity on this? Well, it makes me think about the parable of the talents, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think we, it's probably, and there are other, actually, that's not the only place in the in the parables that we see that kind of, um, that kind of idea happening. But it does seem that God gives some greater measures of things than others uh, if, you, if you follow Jesus' teachings in the gospels. And I think we hear that and we're like, well, that doesn't, 
that doesn't seem right. I wouldn't do that if I were if right. I were a heavenly parent. I would I would give things you know equally. Um, and I, I think that's a good question to ask. Like JT, have you preached on this already? No, I'm preaching on this here in a few months. But but I, I, I now so now I'm going to use the parable. I mean this parable. Uh, this is like you're you're preaching my sermon for me here, which is great. <laughs> But what I think is doing, I mean, like, if we're just simplifying it for a second, I think what he's saying is like, again, you got to imagine sitting in this room and the guy that like you think is different than you is sitting across the hallway from you. And he's in Phoebe's reading this letter and you're being reminded by Paul here that that person has a gift, mm-hmm. a measure of faith that you need. Mm-hmm. And it's not that like his ethnicity makes him different from you or his background or his social setting or perhaps his vocation. But actually there's something that that brother or sister provides to this new mm-hmm. one body in unity that I need and I need him to bring it into the life of this church. So when, when I hear this measure of faith or this gift of faith, I think what we should think about is the parallel that Paul gives us is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The, these gifts that God gives to his church, mm-hmm. this measure of spiritual faith that shows us not so much that our gifts are meant to distinguish each other as being separate or better than or a varsity team or a JV team, but rather we're all in need of each other and in need of the gift that that God gives us through his Holy Spirit. I think that's what Paul's trying to highlight here in Romans. Well, I also wonder if it isn't a situation where, you know, we're supposed to ask the Lord to increase our faith. Mm. You know, so if he's given you a small measure in a particular area, you can ask him, Lord, give me more faith here. And I think especially as we're going to look into this this list of, you know, gifts that are given to the body, it also occurs to me that— you know, there are gifts that um, Kyle has th- where I believe he has more faith in an area than I do. You know, um, like maybe it's evangelism. Kyle Kyle is better with evangelism than I am. He's been given a greater gift there. Um, and then maybe I have a gift that's greater than has been given to him in another area. And I think when we get into this list of gifts, you could you could see that. Like I read through the list and I would imagine most of us are like, oh shoot, I really, mm-hmm. I don't have this one really at all. And then you can feel like you're not a good Christian or you missed out on something that was really important to have in your toolkit. That maybe what's in view is that we're given gifts that are a reflection of, you know, the the, the associated faith with them. Yeah. Um, and I have something that someone else doesn't. Yeah, I definitely think that there is, is I mean, we, we know that he's going to talk about distinctiveness right. of gifts and kind of that differentiation because that's exactly where he goes. Here with measure of faith, I've been really tripped up by this because there's, there are competing views on what's in Uh view here. Um, Some Roman scholars suggest that what's in view is the difference between the runway, so to speak, that Israel had and the Gentiles had, meaning the measure of faith that's extended to them is that, man, Israel had kind of first hearing Mm -hmm. of these promises that then came later for the Gentiles. And subsequently, they should have a greater or a more demonstrable trust because of that runway. Um and but but Schreiner actually argues that measure of faith here is the idea of quantity of faith or trust, not necessarily that somebody is more they have a a, a greater allotment of saving faith, but they have a greater well, so to speak, of exercised yeah, faith. Yeah, that's kind of what I was trying to get to. Yeah, and so I think that that to me makes sense. Although it, I gotta be honest, I I, I don't know. That kind of feels. I don't want to think that there's grades of this, but then I think about the the apostles crying out to Jesus, increase our yeah. faith. Couldn't it be a simple question of maturity? 
Yeah, that's it. That I feel more comfortable yeah. saying it like that. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, if you, because that also kind of corresponds to the idea that Israel had a longer runway, right? It's like, yeah, it's it's almost like someone who grows up in a Christian home potentially has a better runway than someone who doesn't, you know, to to that's hit the true. ground running at the point of conversion. I mean, maybe that I don't know if that's true or not, but yeah, I could see how that'd be true. Yeah. So it's interesting here. I know you're going to move along, but I'm going to make you wait just one second because we talked about okay. in Romans um, 12, 2, about renewing our minds. Um, and just for those who are following along in the text as we're going through, there you have four mentions of thinking just in this one verse in verse 3. He says, to, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment or thinking. And so there's a very heavy emphasis here on the role of the mind um, in how this is all going to play out that I think is worth noting before we move on to verse 4. To verse 4, where Paul takes us to talk about uh, membership and body language. Now, this language isn't um, exclusive to this passage. JT has already brought up 1 Corinthians 12, where you're going to find it elsewhere. So this is a common, it appears to be a common analogy or illustration that Paul uses to talk about the distinctiveness and yet unity that exists in the life of the church. Uh, and so we see in verse 4, there is in one body, we have many members. The members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So I think one of the things that's important just to kind of get the juices going, I'd love to hear what you all have to say, is uh, Paul, and I know this is kind of like my hobby horse here, but Paul is moving here from the doctrine of union with Christ to the doctrine of the unity of the church. That's how it's grounded. We are in one body with Christ as the head. Subsequently, we are all members of that same body. And even though we're different, we're unified. And I think it's important to stress that that unity is fundamentally Christological in mm -hmm. that the unity is something that exists in Christ and it doesn't necessarily exist merely in our enjoyment, our preferences, our inclinations, or how we feel about one another or some other sort of group consensus. Our unity in the church is fundamentally a aspect of the doctrine of Christ. It's not fundamentally an aspect of the doctrine of the church. And I think that a lot of times when we think about unity in the church, we immediately to going, uh, go to triaging or softening our differences. Mm -hmm. I, that's actually not the first move Paul ever makes when talking about the unity of the church. He comes back to Jesus. And then from there talks about those other matters like giftings and functions and, and differences. So I think that's really important, um, particularly now in a radically individualistic age where it's kind of this, uh, we're seeing this, and JT and I have talked to ad nauseum about this offline. We're seeing this almost like uh, this radical identitarianism that continues to be mm -hmm. like, if you can't just be just like me, then I have to find somebody who's just like me. There's like two conv conv uh, convictions of the radically individualistic age we're in. One, there's no one like me. And two, there should only be people like me around me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what is it? <laughs> What, what ends up happening in that is a not just radical individualism, but a radical isolationism. And you can see that right now, I think, on the fringes specifically of the church and the global okay, West. Okay, first of all, you guys have been having conversations without me offline. Hurtful. Uh, and secondly, I'm, I've had this, I don't know where I had this conversation. Now I'm wondering if it was when we were together um, in Colorado, but 
where it was a conversation, because it sounds like a conversation I would have had with you, Kyle, because it was about union with Christ. And it was, um, it was a conversation about how the idea of finding my identity in Christ is a relatively new way of speaking mm-hmm. about being a Christian. Oh, did we yeah. talk about this? Yeah, we did when we were in Colorado. Yeah. And there was an article that was published the last few weeks about, about language of, of, of identity in Christ. Man, it has really— Demonstrates that it's brand new language. Yeah, it has really been thought-provoking for me. Um, and that the, that the typical pattern of, of how this is talked about is, in fact, union with Christ, not identity in Christ and the significance of that difference. Which I feel like you're kind of mm-hmm. hitting at it, that even within um, within Christianity, we have ways of expressing rugged individualism that are perhaps less helpful than we might have thought. Yep, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that's why we need not just identification with Christ. We need incorporation mm-hmm. into the body of Christ. You got to have both of those concepts. Mm-hmm. The identity language, I think, is even if it's relatively new, I do think that it's faithful to where how we sure, see sure, sure. Uh, God talk about the individual in relationship to Christ. But if it's seen as it's like, that's, that is what it means to be in Christ and that's it, then we do miss out on this idea here that's crucial, which is it's one body with many members. So, it's not one body with you. Yeah. <laughs> it's, so it's an, you're not the only one. It's an emphasis problem. It's not that the idea is flawed. It's that the amount of time we're spending talking about the idea is probably not representative of the way that scripture does, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. This is something I'm wrestling through. I think Kyle would disagree with what I'm about to say. And I'm not saying here's my position. I'm just, I'm really trying to kind of wrestle through it because there was a provocative article and there's lots of language about identity in Christ right now. And I just wonder if we see things in the text because of the lenses with which we're coming, which is this lens of rugged individualism, finding ourselves as kind of radically autonomous, rugged individuals who need to flourish only by me, only means by which we can flourish is by finding my very unique Mm self-identity, which is in Christ. But the identity conversation seems to supersede the in Christ conversation. In Christ, yeah, absolutely. And in, in that, that I do think is if we are talking emphasis, that's fine. But like, I guess I'm just wondering, Kyle, like, where would you point us to a passage where we do think about unique individual identity in Christ that doesn't emphasize the in Christ first? Uh, well, no, no, no. I, I, I'm not. I don't. I don't think you're, you're going to find that. Okay. I think that you are going to find passages that emphasize the an individual believer's relationship to Christ. Like it's sure. no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. That's personal language. That's very active. Yeah, yeah. It's not to say that it's communal, but personal is different than identity. Uh, right. But if uh, certainly when we're talking about identity, uh, I've been struggling with this a lot recently. I think I told you this, JT, because I'm writing a sermon. I'm doing a sermon series in like, I don't know, six months or whatever on what is a person. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's come up on that is what is a personality? I was having coffee with somebody at Mosaic and they were like, you know, I hear Christians talk a lot about personality. What does the Bible have to say about personality? And I was like, I don't know what the Bible has to say about personality. <laughs> um, I was like, but we talk about personality a lot. So like, what is yeah. it? And as I've been searching the scriptures, I think one of the first things we have to be honest about, even in a passage like this, but even when we think about union with Christ language, for example, JT, Ephesians 1, which, you know, when we would teach this in the training program or whatever, I go to Ephesians 1 and I talk about, hey, even as he chose us in mm-hmm. him, and I read all the in hims and with hims very emphatically to demonstrate, hey, this is where all these things happen. The language that's used there, for example, is plural language, even as he chose yeah, us. Exactly. In him. So when you're looking at the New Testament, far more often it's asking the question, who are we as opposed to who am I? 
Um, and so we are definitely, I think, a lot of times trying to read into the New Testament hyper individualized language of That's the West I mean, yeah. into a communal culture. Whereas I think if you had asked the 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 average Israelite, who are you? They would say, I'm a child of Abraham. I am a part of Israel. They would have answered in a very corporate, mm-hmm. very communal way, whereas typically we answer it in a very individualistic way. I think we have to be sensitive that we don't say the Bible has nothing to say about the self. Mm-hmm. I think we also have to be careful to say the Bible is going to talk about the self in the exact way that our like our moment in the West is talking about the yeah, self. I- I actually think that the way that the Bible addresses individualism or individual value to God, if you want to put it that way, is is through conventional means. It's the it's the genealogies, it's the stories of God's dealings with individuals in the scriptures. And then I think on top of that, you've got stuff in the Psalms. You know, like I mean, I can't believe I'm mentioning this because it's the Lady Psalm, but Psalm 139. Um, basically assures us that we are fully known and not rejected, which is what, that's what everybody wants, right? To be fully known and and not rejected. That's, that's a, that's a base need. And that's what God, that's what God supplies to us um, through Christ's intervention. And so um, I do think that the Bible speaks of the value and the uniqueness of the individual. But as you were pointing out, Kyle, there's not a book in the Bible that is devoted to the subject of identity, um, the way that we seek out books, you know, through Amazon or whatever to tell us about Mm -hmm. identity. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World as Seminary President Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at courageforlifebible.com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. So it's fascinating. One thing that Kyle and I've talked about, and Kyle, we have, I think, slightly different takes on this book. I forget the name of the new book, but Carl Truman has written the book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, mm-hmm. which is a little bit of a technical read. So if you're if you're ready for some heavy lifting, pick it up. If not, wait, because there's a lay version that's coming out, I believe, in the next few months uh, that that I think will be much more accessible for, for, for the church. Um, but I do think it's important to highlight that specifically here, that's not what Paul, like Paul is not giving us this hyper-individualized Western understanding of self when he talks about 
our, our, when he says in verse five, in this same way, we who are many are one body in Christ. And here he says, and individually members of one another. So it's as soon as he talk, starts talking about the individual, he talks about membership. And as soon as he talks about membership, he talks about this union that we have in Christ, which I do think Kyle is the most important thing in this passage is the reason we're unified. Isn't because we all think the same thing. Isn't because we all vote the same way. Isn't because we would all do the same thing in X, Y, or Z situation, but because we're under the headship of Jesus. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that is our most important, uh, whether it's political, religious, or social affiliation, is we belong to Jesus mm-hmm. first and foremost, which gives us something that we have in common, which nothing in the worldly sense could separate us from. Well, and, and yeah. it means that we're a people patterned by submission, which is going to be mm. important for us to keep in view because I, I would say chapter 12 is setting up the language of submission that's going to carry us through you know, the next portion of the book. That's exactly right. So he does make some distinction here. I mean, we were just talking about what, okay, so yes, we are united together, but now Paul is going to practice some, seems like healthy differentiation Mm -hmm. here. We are one body in Christ, individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith and service and our serving, the one who teaches and is teaching, the one who exhorts and his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So there is, there are, uh, not everybody is gifted the same way. And Paul is distinguishing here. There's a variety of gifts. Um, Let me just get this on the table. Is this an exhaustive list of gifts? No. Well, we have a little clue. We know it's not because there are lists elsewhere that list different things, but we also have one of those typical clues that you find in the Bible that this is a representative list. And that is because there are seven things mentioned. Wow, I didn't, I didn't count that. Yeah, and so the fact that there are seven things mentioned should be a tip-off to anybody who's paid attention that, oh, this is to show, it's to give the idea of completeness, um, but also be a representative list. I, I have a question for you real yes, quick. Kyle? This is an aside. Uh, when you read something like this, like, You've done this before and you're like, did you count? Like, are you just looking for seven? So when you see more than- I didn't do it. The Holy Spirit did it. Well, no, I understand you didn't write it, Jen. (laughs) I'm asking how you picked up on it because I've read this passage a lot uh, and I didn't pick up on that. There are seven gifts here. Now- is that just because you're like, you're, you're, gosh, you're like, I, I'm looking for sevens? Or is it because you read it and we're like, huh, there's more than one or two or three, but not a lot. So there might be seven. I'm just trying to get like, our audience might be going, I've read Romans 12, you know, you know, 15 times. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't notice there were seven. Do you just, are you just looking at it that closely? Is there a, a, a switch that fits for you? What's going on? <laughs> well, I mean, I, she's a ninja. Yeah, I mean, no, That's what it I is. Love, a Bible ninja. I think I love patterns. I think most people love patterns. And so I'm always thinking, huh, that's interesting. I wonder if he's doing something there. I, mean, I think after all the time I've spent in the Old Testament and Genesis and Exodus and counting sevens mm. and twelves and tens, you just start to think, oh, I bet, you know, if I were writing this and I were Paul, you know, I'd probably use the same um, the same structures that were used in Old Testament writing, so that it's sticky content. Okay. And so, I actually think if you look at the way that this breaks out, we're going to see a seven in this section. We're going to see a seven in the next section, and then we'll see a ten in the last section of the book. Okay, um, that's cool. Are. I want to get to the place where I pick up on stuff like that while I'm reading. Um, can, you, I, I don't. can you count um, to seven? Because if you can, I think you're you're making good. <laughs> Good problem. Okay, that's <laughs> the problem. Isn't the counting? Um, the problem. The problem is the observing. Um, but okay, so the list is not exhaustive. Some of these gifts seem straightforward, right? Yeah. I mean, like I feel like 
service, teaching, contributing, leading. You know, one, one thing that I noticed here that I'd love your guys' read on, and, and a couple of commentators that I've read have highlighted it as well, is that though this, there are some similarities between the list of gifts here in Romans 12, they're very different from the gifts that are listed in Romans, or uh, sorry, First Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul is dealing with two very different situations. Mm-hmm. Here he's dealing with one that has more to do with like friction and factions in the church. There he's dealing with the abuse of the Lord's Supper and unity and spiritual gifts and orderliness in the community. But uh, like one of the commentators I read says, missing from Romans, however, the gifts that are listed in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10, whether it's words of wisdom, messages of knowledge, faith, healing, works of miracles, deeds, power, discernment of the spirits, various kinds of tongues. Why do you think this this list of gifts differs pretty radically from the list of gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? It, could it be that the it seems like a huge issue that's going on in Corinth at the time is miss. Uh, misuse of some very specific gifts and mm-hmm. that maybe the reason that mm-hmm. there's a little bit different accent and emphasis in first Corinthians is because, Hey, there are, uh, uh, one of the many problems happening in Corinth is there is a misuse of the gifts, specifically prophecy and tongues. Mm-hmm. Um, and subsequently you get a lot more attention on prophecy and tongues in first Corinthians than you do on any of the other gifts. So, so mm-hmm. the emphasis there, what you would say is on correction and the emphasis here is on diversity of, you know, it's almost, it's like a celebration of the different parts of the body versus a, Hey, reel that in kind of topic. Yes. That's a good way to say it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Does that make, does that make sense with what you're asking JT? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's also just uh, what I like about those answers is it shows Paul's pastoral Mm -hmm. sensibilities Mm -hmm. of not just having the exact same thing to say everywhere, but he's aware of what challenges are facing specific communities. And he's taking a theology that would be true everywhere, Mm -hmm. but applying it specifically somewhere, which is something we can all learn to do Mm -hmm. is, okay, how do I say what I need to say to this specific group of people, which isn't in contradiction to, but complementary of what I've said elsewhere. Okay. So then this raises an interesting interpretive question because, um, a lot of what we try to do, like you, we would take a passage like we're in now and we would go, okay, these are general statements about gifts. And so I need to think about how they apply specifically in the, the body that I'm a part of. Um, but mm-hmm. in epistles that are more specific in the discussion of gifts, would we then want to make sure that we back out and go, okay, this was specific to this church. How is it generally applicable to the church that I'm in? I want to make sure I understand your question. Are you just saying when we read the Bible, we also need, need to not just like say what it says, which we do need uh-huh. to do, but say how it says it in relation to our specific context. Yeah, I mean, I think what I'm asking is if there was specific application to the church at Corinth in the list that's given there, are we served well by not taking it and woodenly applying it in our context uh, and backing away from it and saying what's the general principle? Much in the same way that we might uh, regard an Old Testament law. Um, and looking for the underlying principle if the application feels particularly location-specific? Or is that a flawed way to look at an epistle? I mean, I think we're going to be able to practice this a little bit here in a few episodes with Romans chapter 13. Mm -hmm. You think about Romans chapter 13 and submission to the authorities. That looks different in different contexts. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's it's a little bit harder to do if you're a Christian in North Korea today Mm -hmm. than perhaps a Christian that's living in Houston. And, And thinking about how that that text applies to different situations, different governmental authorities, I think is is going to dictate a little bit how we would answer that question and how Christians ought to submit themselves to authorities. Is that is that what you're talking about? 
Yeah, I, I think because you could just say submit to the authorities. Well, I, I think what I'm wouldn't we? right. Period. I think what I'm saying is there. It does appear to me that in the epistles there are some instructions that seem to be more rooted in a particular uh, moment. Uh, than others. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly true. Like, greet one another with a holy kiss, mm-hmm. or here's what you ought, ought wear and ought not wear in the context of a gathering, which is a very specific mm-hmm. community. But then there need to be general principles that can be applicable to all communities. And I think that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, God has given gifts to the church, period. Mm-hmm. And that means all churches in all places at all times. And the Holy Spirit is using divine wisdom to give specific gifts to specific contexts. Therefore, as we're participating in this contextual local communal life. It's not that we aren't rooted in a universal capital T truth, but we should be aware of our specific community. So as we're teaching or preaching or encouraging and exhorting one another in the spiritual gifts, we should be aware of how might this be abused in my context and how might this give God glory in my context Mm -hmm. and how can I appropriately uh, teach and exhort brothers and sisters to both not abuse, but also to rightly use the things that God is giving us. Is that fair? Yeah. Kyle? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Paul yeah, yeah, maybe yeah, yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I think Paul may actually be with you or be like, I think he might be signaling that with what is one of the more murky gifts in this list, which is prophecy. Even here in this passage, when he mentions, um, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith. I think that there is an indication, particularly if you read measure of faith earlier as being a maturity of faith or quantity of faith kind of uh, uh, description. And this is exactly what Tom Schreiner does um, is he, he makes the case basically here that prophecy is caveated in a way that's kind of significant from the other gifts, meaning that prophecy um, and regardless of how you view prophecy, regardless of how you define it. And I, I would imagine if the three of us were like forced to write it out, we probably would define it differently. But I would say that regardless of how you would define it, Schreiner, and I'm convinced he's correct here, is saying that the gift of prophecy is qualified uh, with a congruence to the maturity of a, of a believer and the community that believer is embedded in. And I think you could make the corresponding case that in Corinth, one of the real concerns about the misapplication and misuse of the gifts is that they are being used in a way that does not reflect substantive maturity. So for example, if you were to read this list and go, how could this play specifically, Jen, if we ask the question that you just asked about uh, the specifics of this particular gift in the life of a church, would it be taught or given or instructed differently? I think he, even here in this verse, we're hearing, listen, if you're a church that is relatively low in spiritual maturity, um, I do not think that introducing something like the gift of prophecy uh, is going to behoove you. I might be very careful about that. I, I'm going to do something that I don't feel great about but I am going to disagree with Tom Schreiner on this. Okay, and um, I can be wrong. I'm prepared to be wrong. He's probably spent, I, he has definitely spent way more time thinking about it. He's probably, than he's probably spent some time thinking yeah. about it. <laughs> but I think if you keep the, this list couched in the context of the paragraph, the opening statement that Paul makes is an umbrella statement where he says, you shouldn't think more highly than you ought to think of yourself, but each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. 
So that's a that is a general setup for what he's about to to give us. And so mm-hmm. I would argue that rather than repeat the measure language every single time he mentions a general gift, he states it once, and the assumption is that it would be the underlying idea behind each of the other statements. Mm-hmm. Um, that feels more to me like the way writers write in the New Testament. But again. Tom Schreiner is smarter than me and has spent a lot more time thinking about it. But I think there's room here to consider that just in terms of the way that parallelism is used, that 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 this is meant to be like, oh, yeah, the same thing over and over again. So in proportion, but that I think that is what I, what he's saying, what I'm saying is that measure of faith and in proportion to our faith is, is using the same phrase, the same way. Are you saying that those phrases are used differently? I'm saying that we would assume then that the same idea carries into, and if service, this according to the measure of faith in our serving, if with teaching and according to the measure of faith in our teaching. Got it. And so in other words, the, it's, it's kind of like those of you who are more mature will think in this way, right? On each of these. So like the, the more, the, the further you are down the path of maturity and the, and the more your faith has grown, the the more, I would say, you would assume the more qualified or equipped you are to exercise your gift in the body. That would be my that thesis. That makes sense. So you're, so you're saying that, okay, yes, the, uh, the measurement of faith allotted is standing as an umbrella or a foundation underneath the exercising of all of these gifts. And that you're, that the usage of in proportion to our faith, a reference to prophecy, isn't to distinguish it as something that requires more faith or more spiritual right. maturity. I, then what? Well, it, I would even add another point, which may be a little spicy. Um, I think that the impulse to assign a special category to prophecy is one that is common among those who preach. Um, that um, there needs to be something unique and special about the gift of preaching um, that, and that we've elevated the role of preaching in the modern church, perhaps beyond even where it belongs in in what happens during the gathering. I'm not saying that preaching is not significant. Oh, sure. Uh, it absolutely is. But uh, I, I, I wonder if sometimes the commentaries don't land a little heavily on the first gift because the person writing the commentary often identifies with that gift more than with some of the other gifts in the list. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that very well could be the case. I I don't particularly see prophecy as synonymous with preaching and neither does Shriner. So I would say I don't know that that's the case here because I wouldn't say prophecy and preaching are synonyms. I wouldn't say that, I would say that they're two different things. You wouldn't consider prophecy prophecy to be an aspect, a a critical aspect of the preaching function? No. So you don't don't regard it as forth telling or I'm, I'm sorry, of speaking forth? No. Not, not in the same way that preaching or teaching is. I would say that the, the gift of teaching is different from the gift of prophecy. And that if one of them has a more pronounced uh, demonstration in the event of preaching, then I would say it's the gift of teaching. Hmm. That would be, that, that's how I read the gifts. But I could be wrong on that. I would say, though, that I agree with you in principle that the we need to be extremely careful about uh, exalting one of these as needing spiritual mm-hmm. maturity and the other ones as not. Mm-hmm. That we should be very careful about uh, because if not, then what are we going to do? We're going to create classes of gifts, which is exactly the opposite of what Paul right. is exhorting us to do right. here. Um, so I do think we got to be very careful that we don't fall into that trap. I actually think that's the main point of the passage right there is mm-hmm. that Paul, yep. Paul, both here and in 1 Corinthians 12, 
the, the main thing he's putting forward is that there are a variety of gifts, none of which should be elevated uh, above the classified other. Mm-hmm. As, as superior to another gift. But rather, when we see each other's gifts, we rejoice and celebrate because, because yep. God's given a group of people a variety of gifts, yet we have one body and one membership, and we need each other to use those gifts. So when we elevate one over the other, we do create two bodies, in a mm-hmm. sense, mm-hmm. because there's one gift that would be more valuable than the other. And so one thing that I think could be really liberating here for people just in a pastoral sense is you don't have to have the gift of the person next to you. As a matter of fact, it's probably better that you don't. It, 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 you need to be thinking about what is the gift that God has given you specifically to use in the life of your church? For you, it might be hospitality, mm-hmm. service, general pastoral care, could be teaching or prophecy, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't demean the gift that God has given us in delighting in the gift that God has given someone else or wanting it. Rather, we delight in the gifts that God has given to each of us so that he can be glorified. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think to be incredibly cautious about the uh, classification, the strata that can develop in spiritual gifts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, okay, well, you know, I just serve. It's kind of a basic thing. It's like, no, it's listed with all the other gifts. It's not like it's... Paul, you know, Paul's not like, hey, service, yeah, but, you know, really amp it up and become generous yeah. or become, uh, do acts of mercy or lead with zeal. You know, it's like, no, th- those all, they all matter. They all matter. Um, all right. Well, as we move into the next section of this chapter, we're going to be looking at the marks of the true Christian. We hope you enjoy the discussion. If you're looking to find knowing faith on the internet, uh, then, which, hey, that's what you're using to listen to this <laughs> podcast. So, you're oh, already where you, you found the internet. Well you done. found the internet. You walked right into it. Congratulations. Uh, you can find Knowing Faith on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Check us out on patreon.com slash knowing faith. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Grace and peace.